I want you to be turning to John chapter 10. And I'd like for us to read at verses 10 and 11. You might hold that passage. We'll be coming back to it. But as we introduce our study, let's first of all read from John chapter 10. The thief cometh not, but that he may steal and kill and destroy. I am come that you may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd layeth down his life for the sheep. And let me go on into a part of verse 12. He that is a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, beholdeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth. And the wolf snatcheth them and scattereth them. Let me underscore the language of verse 11. Our Lord saying, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Thomas Carlyle, about a century ago, decided that he was going to eliminate those distractions and disturbances that kept him back from doing his best writing. So he built a soundproof room, a vaulted room enclosed in such a way that sound could hardly penetrate it. However, there was one exception. He had a neighbor with a rooster, and that rooster was given to vigorous crowing a few times in the night and always at the dawn. And Thomas Carlyle, great man and great writer though he was, would sit frustrated in unproductive anticipation, waiting for the crowing of that cock. And when he finally confronted his neighbor, his neighbor said, Well, Mr. Carlisle, that, cro- that cock only crows three times in the night and once at dawn. And Thomas Carlisle responded, Yes, but you'll never know the worry I suffer waiting for it to crow. Now, a little bit like our lives, isn't it? If we could build a soundproof, people-proof, danger-proof room, It wouldn't really solve the problem because once we got in there, we would have taken with us private enemy number one, worry. It'd be right there with us. There are no bolts or bars that can shut it out. There's no soundproof, people-proof kind of room that will keep us free from that that is a recurring problem in our lives. Let's look at some of the definitions and some of the categorizations of worry. Worried, Henry Ward Beecher, famed preacher, said, worry is rust on the blade. It keeps us from cutting to the real issues, and the real needs and problems of life. Dean Inge, William Inge has said that it is interest paid on trouble that hasn't come due yet. Worry really affects nothing but the worrier. Kind of like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it won't get you anywhere. And yet we persist in it. And you don't solve the problem by somebody coming up and admonishing, stop worrying. Because then we begin to worry about our worrying. And there is something almost compulsive in our brain, and we just keep this thing up. Lloyd John Ogilvie, a writer and speaker of some note, said, 50% of what he'd worried about never came to pass. 50% of it. 25% involved things that he couldn't change anyway. And the remaining 25% 
to which he could give some creative concern, was uh, debilitated, or that concern productively was debilitated because of the other 75%. Well, I think that may be true of a lot of us. A.J. Cronin, well-known physician writer, gave the following categories with regard to worry. Forty percent of our worries never happen. Thirty percent involve things in the past that cannot be changed by any amount of worry. Twelve percent involves health worries, concerns about our health. Ten percent, petty miscellaneous concluded that we have about eight percent. That is legitimate, real, valid uh, cause for concern or worry. Let me just say this. If we were irresponsible people, impervious people, uncaring people, then we wouldn't worry, perhaps. Worry is unproductive. Worry, I think, is a kind of wrong that needs to be overcome. But I would like to make it very, very clear that it can sometimes grow out of understandable concern. It gets out of bounds, and it becomes destructive and unproductive. What's the answer? Look again at John 10. I'm the Good Shepherd. The thief is come but to kill and to destroy. But I am the Good Shepherd. The hireling flees when danger comes, but not so with the Good Shepherd. I am the Good Shepherd. And this is the chapter in which he says, The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No man takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. I have the power, the Greek word exousia, I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up. Jesus, in the chapter in which he pictures himself as the good shepherd, is quick to emphasize the voluntary and vicarious nature of his death. Voluntary, he does it of his own will. I have the power to lay it down, I have the power to take it up. Vicarious, it's in behalf of another. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You know what worry is? It's a form of agnosticism. It's a kind of lurking doubt. It's a question about the adequacy of God to deal with our present problems. It's a form of loneliness in which we see ourselves as all alone with our own human resources, facing the problems and perplexities of life without God, without His help. Now, if it is a lurking form of agnosticism, and that may be shocking, but I think there's truth in it, then trust in the Good Shepherd must hold a great part of the answer. Because, you see, the Good Shepherd says, I protect the sheep. Picture those things that lurk, that threaten, the fears, the apprehensions. He's the Good Shepherd. He lays down His life for the sheep. He sacrifices Himself. And I find much of the answer to this problem in a relationship, a very real and personal relationship with the Good Shepherd. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Let your manner of life be without covetousness. Why? For He has said, I will never leave thee. I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. I will never leave thee, he said. I won't leave you, and I'll never forsake you. And we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. 
I will not fear what man shall do unto me. There's some areas specifically I'd like to talk about. Worry about the past. Worry about the future. Concern about the present. And certain specifics in the present. Let's talk about the past. Much of our anxiety and much of our worry about the past may grow out of our determination to in some way try to atone for our wrongs, ourselves, rather than accepting His forgiveness. We would rather do our way out of that problem than accept the gift that He provides through the cross. Let me remind you that John 10 is heavily weighted with the fact that the Good Shepherd is going to the cross. John 10 emphasizes that He lays down His life of Himself voluntarily, that it's in behalf of others. And so standing between you and your past, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, standing between you and past sin, past wrongs, past mistakes, silence that should have been broken by your speaking, speaking when you should have been silent, doing what you shouldn't have done, failing to do what you should have done, wrong attitudes. Standing between you and that is the cross. And again, I believe that anxiety and worry may very well be a form of agnosticism. The cross is the answer to the problem of our past. Paul writes, forgetting the things that are behind. Philippians 3, 13 and 14. And we say, how? How can we forget? Here's the answer. He takes care of it. He lays down His life for the sheep. It's a vicarious death in behalf of us. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Look at Hebrews 8 and 12, quoting Jeremiah 31. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Oh, how we need that. A famous teacher among the ancient Greeks came to a fellow and he said, I can teach you to remember. And the man said, Oh no, teach me to forget. A boy on a battlefield close to death was approached by one who said, Is there anything I can do? And he said, Oh no, I need someone to undo. And we understand that. The answer, the cross. Hebrews 8.12 describes the benefits and blessings of those who've come under the cover of the cross. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Forgiven, forgotten by God. And God, like any good parent, God, like any good father, would want his child to forget. You remember on the Day of Atonement under Moses' law, the sins of the people would be confessed over the head of the scapegoat. And then after those wrongs had been confessed, that scapegoat would be led out into the wilderness. And Jesus becomes our scapegoat, our sin-bearer. And He bears the burden of our guilt into the wilderness of God's forgetfulness. We don't have to go through life dragging the heavy albatross of past guilt. That's a form of unbelief, of doubt, of agnosticism. He died. For our sins, according to the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15 at verse 3, and thus He takes care of the past. I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness. Sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Romans 8 verse 1, there is now, therefore, no condemnation to them that are in Christ. 
Romans 5 and 1, being therefore justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified means just as if I'd never sinned. There's one thing about which the Christian does not need to worry, that's the past. Peter read from 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. I'm convinced a lot of worry, a lot of anxiety, a lot of apprehension has to do with the past. For God's child, that's unnecessary. If you're not a child of God, come to Him, and He can take care of that. Your empty, wasted years, He will restore your iniquities. Remember no more. But the answer to that problem is in Christ. You say, give me some examples. First, members of the church were the murderers of the Christ. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly, the same Jesus whom ye have crucified, God hath made both Lord and Christ. Acts 2.36 Men and brethren, what shall we do? Repent ye and be baptized. Who's repenting? Who's being baptized? Who are these 3,000 who receive remission of sins? And the Holy Spirit is a gift on that occasion. I'll tell you who they are, the murderers of the Christ. Now then, if they can be forgiven, you and I can be forgiven. 1 Corinthians 6, at 9 through 11. Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with men, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you're washed, but you're sanctified, but you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate. What a motley mob makes up that church of God in Corinth. Apparently the very dregs of human driftwood, but they've been justified. Listen to Paul, who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, injurious, but I obtained mercy. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ was exceeding abundant in faith and love. This is a true saying and worthy of all acceptation. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me as chief, as foremost, he should show forth all longsuffering for a pattern unto them that should hereafter believe on him unto life everlasting. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 13 through 16. If ever in the deep, darkened recesses of the human heart there's a doubt as to whether or not I can be forgiven, Paul says, I'm the answer. Let's be done with apprehension and worry over the past. The past is gone, and God's grace for God's child covers it. The cross covers it. We don't have to bear that guilt. God forgives, Hebrews 8, 12, and He forgets, and there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ. What about the future? A lot of our worry is with regard to the future. We uh, get out the screen. We get out the projector. We sit down in the living room of our mind, and we play the awfuls on the screen. And we anticipate what could happen in the future. And imagination takes over. A good thing that God has given us becomes a destructive thing. And worry is thinking turned toxic. And it becomes that particularly 
as we begin to envision the future. But I want to tell you something. Our Lord is the Lord of all our tomorrows. And the Good Shepherd who can take so take care so well of the past, freeing us from the burden of the past that we might live productively in the present, can also take care of the future. In the first draft of the song, Peace, Perfect Peace, there was a question mark at the end of each first line. Peace, perfect peace, in this dark world of sin, question, the blood of Jesus whispers peace within. Peace, perfect peace, the future, all unknown. Jesus we know, and He is on the throne. There, my friend, is the answer. There is the unknown ahead of us. Some of that is uncertain. Some of us with overactive imaginations have already struggled with problems that we may never face. I want to read a little line from Ralph Waldo Emerson that I think is pretty good. Some of your hurts you've cured, and the sharpest you've still survived. But what torment of grief you've endured from the evils that never arrived. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? The evils that never arrived. How do I deal with that? Practice the presence of the King, of the Lord, of the Good Shepherd. Remember that Old Testament psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not walk. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. And in the close of that psalm, all the days of my life, mercy, goodness and mercy, shall follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's the future. There's the future with the sheep, who in a docile, trusting way knows that my future's with the shepherd, and he does all things well. And so practice the presence of the good shepherd and see him commanding, controlling, conditioning now and throughout the future. Listen to this. I think this is going to do a lot to take care of the future. Revelation 1.18, Jesus speaking through the pen of John. Revelation 1.18, I am the living one, and was dead, and am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. What's about the worst thing you can imagine with regard to the future? Well, one time we must depart this life. Is that defeat? Is that tragedy? Not for the Christian. Not for the one who is in that one who said, I have the keys of death in Hades. Just a few chapters earlier in John, before this Good Shepherd chapter, Jesus said, If a man keeps my word, he'll never see death. John chapter 8, I want to say verse 51. I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes on me, though he die, yet shall he live. John 11:25. I'm the living one. I have the keys of death in Hades. So human existence does not dead end in a cemetery, but it ends in a triumph over the grave in the triumphant Lord. Romans 8, at about 38 and following. I'm persuaded that neither height nor depth nor things present, nor things to come, underscore that, nor things to come shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Principalities, powers, angels, things present, things to come shall separate us. Things to come. 
We know not what the future holds. We know who holds the future. Well, what about the present? You see, I've got problems on the job right now. I've got financial problems right now. I've got health problems right now. I could break down the present problems. Money. Men. Money. Myself. Let me tell you something. Every person is made in the image of God. We're not here to compete, but we're here to live complementary lives in which we reach out to others. Understanding that here is one made in the image of God for whom Christ died. That would solve a lot of problems. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Matthew 5, 43, 44. People are not to be feared, but to be loved. And perfect love casts out fear. Well, what about money? Will I have enough? Will I make it? Let's go back to Hebrews 13. Notice the first part of verse 5. Let your manner of life be without covetousness. Be free from the love of money. Be content with such things as you have. For He has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Listen to Matthew 6. One writer, Edwin Broadus, found here eight reasons not to worry. Take no thought for your life. Be not anxious for your life. Matthew 6.25 What you shall eat, nor what you shall put on, is not the life more than meat, the body than raiment. Behold the fowls of the air. They sow not, neither do they reap, they gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? And which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? You're not going to get to be six eight by thinking about it. You may just have to play guard. One translation has it, Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to the stature of his life? You're not going to help your health by worrying. You may harm it. You're not going to lengthen your life by worrying. You might shorten it. Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature or the measure of his life? And why take your thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, and your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And then Jesus goes on to say, Sufficient unto the day. Take no thought for the morrow. Be not anxious for the morrow. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Well, what about concerns about myself and my health and all that. Try the self-emptying mind we talked about in one of the classes today. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Hug to your heart the truth. Romans 14, 8. Whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. No man lives to himself. No man dies to himself. And if we live or die, we're the Lord's. Paul in Philippians 1, 20 said, I have this earnest expectation and hope that whatever comes, life or death... Christ might be magnified in my body. I believe if I could have that attitude, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be beset by morbid concern and preoccupation with regard to myself and my health. Let's be real practical. 
Intellectually, theoretically, we all believe the Good Shepherd has the power to help us with this. But how do we appropriate that? What are some of the practical steps? Number one, practice the presence. You see, a lot of we gather on Lord's Day, and we're much aware of our Lord and His presence, and then we get off through the week, and we become practicing deist, or practicing naturalist. And I would not say practicing atheist. Intellectually, that's not true. But maybe with regard to the practicing, we come pretty close to that. And we believe that it's all up to us. Oswald Chambers said something like this. Are you committing that thing that's pressing so severely on you right now to the Lord? If you are, you'll receive His peace. He will bring a benediction into your life. He may not free you of the trouble. He may give you the strength to endure it, but He will provide you with peace. But if you're determined to worry your way through, you obliterate Him and deserve what you get. And boy, when I get to the end of that quote, I say, ouch, 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 ouch. But I think there's some truth to that. We forget Him. Practice the presence. Pray. Pray without ceasing. If you want to overcome worry, in nothing be anxious, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall guard your hearts. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Nothing and everything. Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. In nothing be anxious, but in everything. Pray. Let me add, too, that there is a place for constructive action. We don't leave the Lord out. We don't act independent of Him or His strength, but there's a place for action. Hey, students, don't worry about those term papers. Write them. Hey, ladies, don't worry about that ironing. Iron it. Hey, do you get it? Sometimes the best thing to do is just get busy with some creative action. And worry will sometimes keep us from that. Robert Burdett said there are two days about which I will not worry. Two sacredly carefree days in every week, completely free from fear and apprehension, yesterday and tomorrow, if we can reach that point, and we can as we trust in Him, then we will have gone a long way in the victory we need to gain. Let me make this point. Trust and worry are antithetical. Trust and worry are irreconcilable. Trust and anxiety are mutually exclusive. Robert Letourneau said, when trust comes in, worry exits. When trust leaves, worry comes in. And worry will not leave until trust is invited back in. And so the real question may be, which will be the honored guest in your heart? Trust or worry? Worry.